So I'm calling this uh, Arabia, and we'll, we'll talk about why in a moment. But, you know, they thought it was done when the Nazarene was splayed out on a cross next to the two thieves. They assumed that the entire issue was now resolved, that whatever this infatuation with Jesus had been, that now it had proved conclusively that he was not who he had said he was. People had talked about him being Messiah, but his death seemed to be the final word on that. And certainly, if we looked at his so-called followers, they had, they had run away. Uh, certainly for them, the world had ended as they knew it in terms of their faith in Jesus. And so it must have caught everybody completely off guard when what first seemed to be a rumor but then it, in some way, it, it, it seemed to have something more than that to it because the followers of Jesus started talking about Jesus in a different way than anybody could have anticipated. They started suggesting that he had risen. And he really, even though he had died, he had risen again and he had appeared to them. And then they started to act like they really believed it. And before long, there was a, a group of them that were gathering that had actually begun to proclaim with an increasing amount of boldness that was unsettling to those who were opposed to Jesus, that he was indeed the promised one of God who had risen and ascended into glory, and they were now his witnesses. And so there was an early discussion about, well, how, what do we do with these people who believe Jesus is Messiah? They were calling him Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And there was a, 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 some debate that they should, well, we should give them a place within the larger umbrella of our Jewish faith. At the same time, there was an emergence uh, a seeming momentum that was developing. And so there was another wing in Jerusalem that really felt threatened by what was happening and felt that the best way to deal with these so-called followers of the way that they believed to be completely false and dangerous was to apply pressure and actually eliminate them. And that's, of course, what led to the, the sort of response of the early church with the second generation of leaders like Stephen. We talked about him. He ends up beginning to challenge the the belief system, he begins to challenge him in the scriptures, and ultimately he's killed. And then we know what happens after that is there's a, a decision that is made to allow a zealous young Pharisee who is at the head of his class, a man both respected already at an early age as a definitive leader in the movement, uh, to give him the, the authority and the power to be able to hunt down and actually get rid of these followers of this false way, the followers of the way called Jesus. And first, it, it, it occurs within a certain group in Jerusalem itself. And then Saul is given these papers, this authority to go to Damascus in the north. Just quickly, I'll put up a map again. Just to remind everybody about the context geographically of what we're talking about. Jerusalem, see where Damascus is in the news today. One of the oldest cities in all of civilization's history. Some people say it's the oldest city. Uh, but it was a, a journey. Saul knew that there were a community of followers of Jesus who were known to be in Damascus. And so it was his intention to go and arrest them and bring them back in chains. It was on the road to Damascus where he has this astonishing, he says, life-changing moment of absolute stunning you know, confrontation with Jesus of Nazareth where he says he hears a voice from heaven, sees the risen Lord in, in the light of his glory, and then he is blinded by the, the light of Jesus. And he had intended on going into Damascus as a, a, a somewhat of a, a respected leader. 
he had a, a, already a host uh, that was preparing to welcome him in, a man by the name of Judas who lived on a street called Straight that still intersects Damascus today. And it was his intention to go in there and to um, do the things that he had been commissioned to do. Well, we know what happens. He ends up being led into the city, hardly a conqueror or anything resembling a threat. He can't, he can't even see. And the, the description is he's led by hand to this man's house. And in this man's house, he's led into a room. And in this room, he's left alone in the darkness. And we're told we're, he was left there for three days by his own request, not even eating, pondering what has happened. What everything he thought Jesus to be. Remember the exchange that occurred. He said, who are you, Lord? And the voice that came back to him was, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And in that moment, he was blind. And, and honestly, he, he didn't know what to do next, but Jesus had said to him, the voice from heaven had said to him, you go into the city and it will be shown to you what you will do, what you must do next. So it's in that waiting place for three days that the Lord, we also know, is working on another side He's got another man, a follower, a man we don't know a lot about, a man by the name of Ananias, who was seemingly a respected follower of Jesus in the Damascus community. And he, he also has this vision. And in his vision, he's being told that you need to go and go to this house of a man named Judas, and you'll find another man there, a man that you may know of, a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias is going, that's the same guy who, who's been persecuting and pursuing all of us and hunting us down. And I want you to, and in the vision, he's told, go, go to him. He'll be expecting you. He's, he's been praying. And in his prayer, he's seen a man with your name coming to him to pray over him. I want you to go to lay your hands on him to pray over him. And I want you to, to uh, impart to him something of a healing so that he may see again and receive the power of the Spirit. And what was that? It was initially, remember we talked about how Ananias resisted. His first inclination was, no, this guy's dangerous. But eventually he comes around, he goes. And that is what really does lead us, lead us to this moment in the text here that I want us to look at again, just as a point of connecting it all. So let's look at Acts 9, verse 17. And this will be 17 through 19. And again, it says that Ananias then went his way and he entered the house and, you know, laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says that immediately there fell, fell from his eyes. It was something like scales, things that had been blocking his vision. And he received his sight at once. And he arose and he was baptized. And then he, after he had received food, he ate again. He was then strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. You know, you know, I read this initially. I was thinking about it because I tried to pause for a moment. Periodically, I like to do that because when I'm reading a passage and try to envision the moment, because we're given this like general description. But think about it for a moment. Saul, we may assume, is in the room. He's totally unable to see. He's dark, in the darkness. But he knows, he, he has this impression that a man named Ananias is going to be coming to him. Ananias arrives in the house. He's brought into this room. There is Saul, we may assume, sitting. What does Ananias do? He does exactly what he was instructed to do. He walks up to Saul, who's in, the, who's in this position. And he, he first thing he says to him is, again, brother Saul. He says, the Lord Jesus. This is what he said. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. He has sent me here so that you might see again 
and that you might receive his spirit. And in that moment, as that happens, we know that, that, that the Bible says that it was immediately, that as that prayer goes forth, that it says immediately his eyes, his eyes are open. Now, again, the first thing he sees is, is, is Ananias, right? So Ananias and he, there's that moment there, I, I'm trying to imagine my mind's eye, where Ananias is praying and he sees Saul and Saul looks up and the first thing he sees in his new life, as it were, is he sees, he sees Ananias. And I wonder if they lingered in that moment there, both amazed at the extraordinary turn of events that had brought them together that could not be explained, that both had known would be utterly impossible if it were not for the reality of the living Jesus. Because if you recall, four days earlier, he was on his way to hunt people like Ananias down, and now Ananias was there before him. The very first person he sees in his new life is a brother who has just prayed over him and blessed him and touched him and empowered him through the Lord. It's a powerful moment, and it, it sets in motion an entire journey for, for Paul that ends up, ends up really changing our world as we know it. Now, I was thinking about because we know what happens next. You know, later on in his life, and again, I think both of them were amazed. Sometimes you will have situations in life where we, we, we'll look at someone and say, isn't it amazing what the Lord has done here? I mean, this is, this is not just coincidence. This is a God thing. And a lot of some, sometimes our most, some of our most memorable moments in our spiritual journey occur in these, these just astonishing in, uh, things that we could not have predicted nor anticipated nor even manipulated. They, it, it, it becomes something of a reminder to us that God is at work. And a lot of times he's at work at both ends. Now, later on in his life, in his advanced years, Saul, Paul, as Paul, would look back on this moment, this season in his life. He would write to the church in Galatia in the book that we call the Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. And he would look back on this season and he would say these words, and I put them in the handout. We can read them in the scripture as well. It says this in Galatians, we'll look at it. It's in Galatians 1, verse 11 through 18. It says that, but I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel, this message, this good news of Jesus, which was preached by me, is not, it's not something that I just kind of invented. It's not like it was done according to man. Look at it. He says, for I didn't receive this from man. Um, I wasn't taught it. It came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he says, I, you know, he goes, and then he says this in his letter. He says, for you know, and again, years have passed. He goes, you know, many of you are aware of who I used to be, of what happened to me in my life. He says, you know, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God. In fact, you know how I did this beyond measure. I, I honestly, I tried to destroy it. He goes, and I advanced, as, as many of you are aware as well, in Judaism, beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I was really committed, intensely committed. But when it pleased God, and this is the only way he could describe it, when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, his undeserved overture of love at work in my life, to reveal his son in me, to me, through me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, the non-Jewish speaking people, the non-Jewish people, um, the Greek speaking people that were so much also a part of that world. 
And he says, I did not immediately, as you know, confer with flesh and blood. My first reaction was not to go and reason this out with men. I didn't go up to Jerusalem, look at verse 17, to those who were apostles. That's not what I did. I actually did something different. I went to Arabia. I went into the wilderness. And then I remained there until, until really, I returned again to, to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I re remained with him for 15 days. Now, this is important. What is he saying happens? Look at the timeline. Look what occurs. After his initial opening to Jesus, Saul then, Saul then begins to interact with the community of believers in Damascus, but only for a brief while. It then appears, based on his statement here in Galatians, that he decides that rather than going back to Jerusalem, one, to either meet with the people who had sent him, or two, to meet with the apostles and confer, he feels compelled also not to stay in Damascus, but rather to go into a more isolated place. Not completely isolated. He would still have interaction at some level with smaller towns and perhaps synagogues at times, but for the most part, he was living a life of relative isolation, comparatively speaking, where, it, where he says he simply began to have a deepening of his own life with the Lord Jesus to the extent that the man who is formed in the wilderness, who for those, he says it was for three years, maybe a part of the first year, a full second year, part of the third year, three years. It was three years before he returns back to Damascus. During that period, he's in the wilderness. He's growing in his own life with Jesus. There's a sense that he's getting direct, he says, direct revelation of who he is. You gotta remember, it's important because he's trying to say that I, didn't, I am one who's been called by God and given an understanding of who Jesus is for a specific purpose. Remember what Ananias said the Lord told him to tell him? He's going to take this message before not just the Hebrew people, but before Gentiles and those who are in authority. And then you need to tell him, Ananias, this also. He's going to suffer many things for my name's sake. And he is processing the implications of his own faith. Remember, he is highly trained. He's had a pharisaical training. His worldview has been very black and white. It is a law-driven worldview of God. His perception of God is that things are meticulously clear and that we earn, in a way, our way to him. The man that emerges out of the desert, if you will, is a man who has an expansive panoramic understanding of the grace of God. He begins to talk about what God has done in Jesus Christ in a way that is just radical, because it just blows the doors off and pushes it outside the boundaries. And it, it begins to prepare a mechanism to take it in places that it had not previously been able to go because the message now is going to go transcultural. And he's talking, and Paul starts saying things like this, that this message of Christ is a message that's rooted in the scriptures. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, look, the, the previous Saul was a man who lived his life in the law. Therefore, he, he connected righteousness to Moses and the law. But the Paul that emerges out of the wilderness is one who's had his life touched by Christ. And he begins to talk about how God's ways predate even the law. They go all the way back to Father Abraham, who lived by faith. And then he begins to say the just, those who want to be right in the eyes of God, will live by faith. That is the grace of God, that is a gift from heaven, not of works, as any of us can boast. We're never good enough. Perhaps he continually looked deep into his own heart and saw how he could never, ever, especially for who he had been, be good enough for Jesus. It was God who chose him. And that becomes the message. Now, after that, and by the way, a lot of things happen in the wilderness, right? The Bible has a rich tradition of people being formed in wilderness places. 
Think about it. Think about Moses. Moses' real formation of character occurs not when he's a prince in Egypt, not even so much after he's a, lead, a leader leading his people out of slavery. It occurs in that middle period of his life when he's basically a shepherd in the wilderness and his character is being formed. All the pride is being beaten out of him. He serves. By the time he's done, he's capable of leading in an entirely different way. He was formed in the wilderness. Think about it. John the Baptist, another example. The one whose voice was one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. In his case, it was not so much about character formation as it was connected to his calling. And so his calling and his responsibility required him to pull apart. Think about, hey, another, think about Jesus, the master's own example. What does it say? For 40, we know, for 40 days, he was led into the wilderness prior to his public ministry to be tested of the evil one. It was a time of testing. And in Saul's case, it's a time of formation, of deepening his understanding of who Jesus is. The man who emerges out is very different than the man who set in. That three-year interval in his life was a time of deepening. And even though he was away, in, a, in, there, in another sense, he was exactly where he was supposed to be. That has a lot of implications for you and me. A lot of times we think of ourselves also as moving into places of transition. I want us to think about that part of his life as being an interval between what was and what was to be. And what was God trying to form in him? Now, let's look look what happens next. We know that after those three years, we'll pick back up, and this will be our last piece of scripture we'll look at. He comes back to Damascus. So he, from Damascus, he goes into the wilderness. He's in and out of that place for three years in Arabia. He comes back in to Damascus. This is what happens. Before he goes back to Jerusalem, he has this incident that occurs. It says this in in Acts 9.22. But Saul increased all the more in strength. And that is really what happens to him those three years. There's a spiritual deepening of the man. And it says that he began to confound the Jews. That would be the other leaders at the time who would have been his contemporaries and peers, um, former associates who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. He began to advocate uh, that the, the promised one of God had come and that it was Jesus. And what before he had hated he now began to assert with a degree of intensity that honestly was different than anybody had ever seen because he he basically begins to to take his, you gotta remember who he was, an unusual man. Again, meticulously trained in the way of his people, trained in what was at that time one of if not the the most highly respected teachers uh, in all of Israel, Gamaliel, his star student, he has this you know, prodigious intellect. He's a, he's a thinker, a theologian. He's also fierce. He's, a, he's, an unu- he's well-versed in, he's bicultural. He is both a person of Hebrew culture, deeply Im- immersed in the ways of, the, of, of the, his people, the ways of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's at the same time very f- capable of moving freely in Greek culture, Greco-Roman culture. He's a Roman citizen. He's very familiar with poetry and learning and philosophy. So he's this unique person. And then he makes the case that Jesus is Messiah. He's this like very potent weapon. Look what happens next though. As he begins to, to, to make the case that Jesus is Messiah, look what it says happens. It says, after many days were passed, there was a plot that was made to kill him. And 
this says their plot became known to, the, to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. So he became aware that there was actually a group of people who were committed to killing him. Now, how ironic is that? He had come in to do that very thing. Now he was the one being hunted three years later. And we're told that they were waiting for an opportune time to essentially ambush him as he was leaving the city. That's the gates of the city you come in and out of. And they were going to do it, we're told here, um, by night so that no one would really see it. And so the plan was hatched. But then the disciples hear about this. The other the community of believers, they come up with their own plan. And I look at all the human, I, you know what's amazing to me? God is doing stuff, and at the same time, you're seeing all these other human beings are doing stuff. And it's all, all working together. What do they come They go, we got an idea. We're going to get you out of this city alive. We're going to put you, and this explains the little pen and ink there, right? We're going to put you in a basket, a big one. We're going to tuck you in there. And then what we're going to do is we're going to tie some ropes. So we, got, we, know part, we know a part where they won't be watching. What we're going to do is we're going to tie some ropes to this basket. It's a big one, right? I mean, they may have even put a top on it, right? Just put them in there, nice and tight. And they said, we're going to tie some ropes to you. We're going to lower you down on the city walls. And then in the nighttime, when you get to the bottom, just get up and get out. And that was the plan. And it says that's exactly what they did. They lowered him down by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. And I wonder... I wonder if as Paul is being dropped down in the basket, if as he's being lowered, going from one side to the next, as those guys are holding on to that rope, letting it go a little at a time on each side, I wonder if in that moment there was a part of him that didn't flash back to a moment three years earlier where he was making his way into town as something of a celebrity a hero of sorts, a man fully deputized with the power and authority of the great Sanhedrin of Jerusalem, coming to be a man of power and authority, respected, feared, revered, honored, a man who was fiercely proud and certainly arrogant. And now to be stuck in a basket, being lowered down, and finally, to have it taken off and say, go for your life. And I think in that moment, if you wondered, if a part of him was wondering, you know, as he, as he climbed out and made his way into the night, there was a part of him that was saying, that may be true. It's not what I envisioned. But you know what? I've never been more alive. And I've never been where, more where I'm supposed to be. And the world was about to change. Now, I think about this. I look at it, and I, I, I you know, I have some things that I would like to just suggest for us around this when it comes to following him. And I'm just used to, we, we've looked at the narrative. We looked at what happened. Now let's interact with it, okay? Let's do this in the minutes that we have left. I'm going to suggest some things about our own life in God and our own life period. I'm going to suggest that there are going to be times that we're all going to need wilderness times to prayerfully ponder our path and our purpose. And that a lot of times, just as Saul had to pull away from the noise of what had been before he could pursue with clarity what was yet to be, that there are going to be times in our lives where we're going, to, we're going to call these times wilderness or Arabia times. These are times where we're in between things, you guys, where something is ending and something new is beginning. And sometimes it may be three years. Sometimes it may be three months. Sometimes it may be three weeks, maybe even three days, or maybe even less than that. I don't know. What I'm going to call it is that we have gaps in our seasonal transitions when the Lord is trying to establish things in us. But one of the things we need to understand is that we live in a very noisy culture. 
I suggested that last week, I'll say it again, is that what I mean is not just, I'm not just talking about the noise that we're accustomed to listening to. I'm talking about all the things that are constantly coming our way. In this new amazing technical world that we live in, we have so many more opportunities to save time, and at the same time, we have so many more opportunities to waste our time. And we're good at both. And the th reason I say that is because we have access to so much, and if we're not careful, we're so busy that we're moving through life. And maybe some of the things that God's trying to form in us, he can't form because we're not listening. Because there's so much stuff happening and we're so involved in things or we're, we're, we're stuck in ruts that oftentimes it's not until we have, listen, a wilderness point or an Arabia moment in our life, a moment where we, and again, those transitions might be forced upon us. It might be something like, you know, we lose, we, we have a job transition that's forced upon us. It might have to do with a particular issue that we're dealing with at a health level. It might have to do with a relational meltdown, a personal issue, or have to do with things that we're really just feeling no longer enthused by, feel some things are dying inside of us. We're, we're, are we sense just by where we are in our life that what has been can't be anymore? And that some of the stuff that I've acquired habitually is not helping me anymore? It's actually holding me back? That, I'm in, that God wants to do a new thing? That he has already said he wills to do a new thing, but he has some things he wants to form in us? Can you hear me when I say that some things can't be formed on the run, in the noise? They, they're, they're formed in the places when we pull out. They're, they're formed in the wilderness. Again, I know we often think of wilderness as bad, but, but in these cases, it can actually be a good place. Because the wilderness is where we can get, it, we can get at things at a soul level, because we're listening. And sometimes that, that listening that we couldn't do before, we can do now. And all of a sudden, we start doing interior work. We start taking it seriously. We start pursuing the Lord in a deeper way. What comes out of those periods in our lives sometimes, if we do it right, is a much deeper life with God, a life that is far more capable of affecting other people. There's something of a reality that begins to emerge as we engage his words, as we begin to engage in rich conversation with others who are also seeking to follow him with sincerity of heart. That we begin to challenge our priorities and ask questions around the things that I'm putting my time into really reflect the true values of my life. I really want to add up the time that I'm spending. Does it reflect what I see as most important? And I know we can frustrate ourselves. We don't always get that right. But the more we can do that periodically and probe deeply into our own heart, prayer long, pray, reflect, and think long thoughts, and periodically challenge the way we're living our lives, we create a, the opportunity for God to deepen us at a soul level. And it, it's one of those things that can happen at these periods of transition in our life or just by feeling led to do it. It's a, it's a place where we learn to think about who God wants us to be. Now, the second piece here, I'll just flip that over, is that, and you'll notice this with, with, with happens with Saul as well, is that wilderness times are not just intended to be an end in themselves. Look at this. They're supposed to be a prelude, or a, a, really, for re-entry. I look at this, I go, well, Paul, you know, think about it. In, in his case, after, around, after that period of time, in his case, three years, but, you know, rest assured that, that is, is in the same way that he was also, right, he was also sort of moving through who God was now calling him to be in Christ, that there are times where the Lord is going to begin to do things inside of you and me, and I will call it, that we may get at that point, okay, in his, I'll put it this way, in his case, he got a sense of his life call right there. It was forged in the wilderness, 
But sometimes the Lord will give us a seasonal call in our life. It's like we're now being prepared for a new chapter. And the Lord has something he wants to drive home. He wants to do. He wants to write in. Sometimes I've, said, I've seen in my own life, there are things God's trying to take out of my life because they're now hindrances. It's, not, it's, not, it's like the Lord is saying, that, that, needs, that needs to go so the new thing can come. And there are other times the Lord is trying to establish something new in us of life, a different way of being. But then, listen, he calls us to these points where we're supposed to re-engage. Saul comes back. He doesn't just stay, I'll put it, he doesn't just stay in the mountains of Arabia living out his life in, you know, spiritual bliss until he's gone. He comes back into the fray three years later and engages people and starts to serve and becomes a communicator, an engager. He begins to invest himself in others, discipling. He's engaged. And I'm reminded of the balance, and I was thinking this, I was thinking about this. There is a rhythm in the Christian life between being and doing. Both are needed. Some of us are better at doing than being. Some of us are better at being than doing. What do I mean by that? It's like one is to do with who God wants us to become. It's, it's soul development. It's about developing our personality before him, our life. It's deepening our, ourselves in him. The other has to do with serving and doing good in his name and blessing and getting involved and, and, and being a light out there in our real world and not just living a life of faith that is disconnected from works, but a life that's committed to being a person of good works and is engaging it. And, both, and what I'm saying is both are needed. Some of us, we more easily fall in one direction than the other. We're really good at staying active and doing good things, but we're not good at being a alone with God and our thoughts and thinking and praying and reflecting and deepening ourselves and asking hard questions and allowing others to ask those questions. Some of us are really good at that, but we have a harder time actually engaging people and serving and doing. And, and the Lord, is, there's, we, need, we need to be aware of that. And that leads me to this last thought, which is this. When all is said and done, the Christian life, and it shows up here with, with Paul, is always going to challenge our pride, you guys. It always is. And it's always going to invite us into places of humility. You know, that's what I'm saying. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, it's like the contrast is vivid, right? I mean, like Moses, he leaves this place of prestige, power, notoriety. He's respected. And all of a sudden, he's in the desert in relative obscurity. Nobody is, he's impressing no one. The, and then the picture of Saul in the basket, Right, sneaking out of Damascus. It just says it all, how humbling it had all become. And yet, he was exactly where he was supposed to be. Things are not always as they seem. And some things that we describe as setbacks are not really setbacks. They're actually divine assignments. And they're places where God's trying to do things inside of our lives. There are times when we are pursuing his plan for our lives. I know this is going to sound odd. But I'm convinced of it. There are going to be times when pursuing his plan for our lives that we're going to almost seem like we're the loser. Because if you just compare the two, what's more impressive? A guy walking in his full power into a city with people afraid of him and respecting him or a guy who has to hide out in a basket being dropped down a city wall in the dark. And yet, <laughs> if we may say it, he was great in the eyes of the Lord. Why, and may we never forget this, the Lord sets the scales differently. His definition of success is different than our world's definition of success. 
There are times, I suppose, as Jesus reminded us, I think on more than one occasion he said it, that greatness in the eyes of human beings does not necessarily translate into greatness in his eyes. We can remind ourselves of that because we can start telling ourselves stuff that isn't true. Because if we choose to believe Jesus, now that's the question. If we do believe, if we will take him at his word, what he tells us is, do not get confused about what greatness really is. Temporal greatness may at times overlap. And it is not impossible to achieve and to, to be admired at the same time to please God. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is the two aren't synonymous. The Lord said he taught us. He taught us to be great in God's eyes is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to pursue relational love and to love God. This is pleasing in my eyes. This is success in my eyes. It's a very different definition of success. I may suggest this, that God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That oftentimes what we think is gain isn't really gain. And what we think of as loss may not actually be a loss. On the one hand, it looked like Saul lost. But it was, it was like, it was the complete opposite. And where was he being formed? He's being formed in that very place. Some defeats are victories in disguise because they break us of our pride. And they remind us of what's really important. It's what God says is important. And we're so filled with contradictions. We're capable of self-betrayal, letting people we love down. We have flaws in us. He loves us still. You know what? When all is said and done, you know what Paul learned? He learned about the grace of God. That was greater even than his weakness. And you know what he said? I serve Jesus not to get his approval or to earn his love. I can never earn it. I'm never good enough for him. I serve him because I am loved, in spite of who I am and in light of who I am. And may that also pulsate inside of you and me. Desire to live a life that's pleasing to him and to be a blessing, to be a true success, to be great in the eyes of God. Come what may and not despise the wilderness seasons of life when often are the places where God is reordering things because he can bring good out of so many things that many times our culture says is bad, but God can bring good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we uh, are before you, uh, we welcome you into our heart, welcome you into our life as we prepare. You know, Lord, you know, you know everything. You know everything we walk through. You know every, every issue we're working through. You know, you know our fears, our dreams, the plans. Um, you know what our struggles are. Nothing's hidden from you. I know you love us. Um, you love it, it. Lord, I know you're calling us to places of growth and expansion, and your faithfulness is stunning. And I, I know you're committed to us. May we be committed to you. Help us, Lord, to do this. Help us to seek to honor you better. Give us strength to do it. Um, help us to see and to follow through, to be and to do. Um, I pray that you bless our closing minutes here, Lord. Bless our, our time of giving as many of us are committed in our tithes and our offerings. And bless this closing time of worship for us, this, this ending of our service but let your word inside of us continue. That is what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.